Latter-day Peace Studies is produced by peace-loving members of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Any views expressed herein are not to be taken as official positions of the Church or its authorities. Latter-day Peace Studies presents Come Follow Me. I'm Shiloh Logan. And I'm Ben Peterson. Thank you for joining us as we discuss this week's reading of Come Follow Me, as outlined by The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We're recording these podcasts from our homes, and so you'll often hear children playing, dogs barking, and babies crying. This is our life, and we love it. Our hope is that as we discuss these scriptures and truths, we will come to a more perfect understanding through experiencing the atonement of Jesus Christ and find greater peace in our lives. Okay, we're back. This is Ben, and I have again Christopher Hurtado with me today. Welcome again, Christopher. It's good to be back again, Ben. We are doing sections 111 through 114. These sections talk about various things, but uh, there does seem to be a pretty overarching theme um, here that uh, we can identify throughout the sections. For me, it came down to the Lord telling them that they didn't need to be so over anxious and concerned with uh, accomplishing a particular part of the work. We've talked about this before in previous podcasts that the Lord doesn't hold us responsible for a particular outcome or accomplishment in something. Rather, he invites us to participate in the work and says that he takes care of the outcomes. Often when we get involved in something and we become very over anxious about the way something's going to turn out, and if it doesn't turn out the way that we envision it, then we get upset about that. Early in the Doctrine and Covenants sections, we have this occurrence with Martin Harris of the lost 116 pages. And so we had a a pretty uh, long discussion about the concept that the Lord's work isn't frustrated. It's rather our work is frustrated. And whenever we get frustrated, it means that some idea that we had about how things were supposed to be didn't occur, but the Lord's not really worried or upset about that. His work goes on. Things aren't changed in terms of his ability to accomplish his work by that. Yeah, not even the entire First Presidency apostatizing and and a third of the apostles can stop the Lord's work from moving on. Sure. So that comes up here. Starting off with section 111, there is a lot of historical context here that the section heading alludes to in the most ambiguous way. (laughs) Yeah. So what apparently happened is you go back and read in some of the historical records. What's going on at this time is so many of the brethren have been focused on preaching and proselytizing and um, doing the administrative work of the church that they have, for the most part, kind of left their professions. And so there's not a lot of income in that way. So the church is heavily in debt in various ways. Members of the church are heavily in debt in various ways because of there's the temple, there's everything that happened in Missouri with the lands, there's the United Firm that took on a bunch of debt, you know, there's all this stuff going on. And 13,000 of them day dollars. Yeah. So this is a lot of money. Big deal. So a lot of anxiety here over how they're going to take care of these debts. Joseph Smith hears that back east, there is potentially a a place, a house that has some money hidden in it. So this is the infamous, yeah, buried as it were. 
So this is in the infamous Salem, Massachusetts, right? Which is famous for for other reasons as well. But this is kind of Joseph Smith's thing back in the day. It is interesting there. You know, he even even worked for a guy that they were digging for silver and you know old silver mines, and they never found anything. They never got anything. But this is still something that is that is part of the culture and and history of Joseph Smith. And so it it makes sense here that he would be very attracted to this concept that there's gold or silver buried somewhere and it's secret and they could go get it and it would help pay the debts of the church. So they go there and they discover what is supposedly this house of this widow that has this and they they succeed in renting the house for a time so that they can live there and spend the time searching for it. I read that they never succeeded in renting or buying the house. There is a there is there are conflicting accounts. No about, kidding. Yeah, yeah. That's so, interesting. So yeah, there are conflicting accounts about this. However, um, in in one of the accounts, and again, the, one of the issues with this story is most of the accounts are second or third hand. Okay, so there there is an account. Um, it is, however, considered somewhat credible <laughs> because it is corroborated by ver- some other accounts that. That they did succeed in renting the house for a time, but were unsuccessful in finding any money in the house. Um, it's possible that other accounts downplayed that or said they didn't weren't successful in renting the house or anything because they wanted to um, sort of move on, <laughs> maybe not cover up, but move on from the fact that they were unsuccessful. I think it bears bringing up because it really contextualizes especially verse one of this section, right? Because we we get this from the Lord. I, the Lord, your God, am not displeased with your coming this journey, notwithstanding your follies, right? But there's no, um, with without that context there, there's no reference for what their follies are. And it seems to me that this is referencing uh the fact that they were especially Joseph Smith but those around him as well were concerned with uh acquiring this buried treasure and even by our you know maybe modern sensibilities this seems a little hokey although uh at the time this was a a very is normal the right word maybe common <laughs> thing for people to be searching for buried treasure and the there were various circulating stories, especially in in Salem, about buried treasure in, in various places. So yeah, at this particular time and place, you have Nathaniel Hawthorne nearby writing about buried treasure in Salem and reports right. in the local newspapers of the same. Yeah, so this isn't it's not like crazy talk in the in the historical context of the time, right? Um, but you know they go and they aren't they. They expend quite a bit of energies in trying to achieve this, and you don't achieve it. And it, it, it wasn't, you know, it was kind of a waste, so to speak. So that is a folly, right? You uh, you wastefully uh, pursue something that that uh, doesn't, you know, end up happening at all and, and wasn't useful. So I think importantly, Ben, I, I'd go a little bit further. You know, folly suggests imprudence. Hmm. And so it's important to remember that, yeah, it's important to remember that their prophets aren't infallible hmm. and they're human and, and fought to, you know, folly is a human 
thing, right? It's, this is it's what it means to be human, is to be, to have folly. It's part of our experience as humans. Yeah. The great part here about this verse, I think that uh, really brings out the concept here, is the beginning where he says, I, the Lord your God, am not displeased with your coming this journey. Yeah, it's interesting because B.H. Roberts made it sound like that that they were really chastised <laughs> by the Lord. Even given this, you know, here here was this verse, right? And and he's saying this. He was maybe a little too sensitive to the way this was seen at the time. Well, and and when you're upset that you don't accomplish a particular goal and you think that this is going to mean severe trials for the church or failure, right? That can definitely feel like a chastisement. It does really harken back to what happened with the 116 pages of Martin Harris because they went through a period of extreme guilt and pain. And Joseph Smith says he, he felt like he lost, lost his soul, you know, over this thing. And then when they finally, you know, come to it and come calm down, come back to the Lord, the Lord says, it's okay. Like nothing's wrong. You, you guys beat yourself up over this. Right. The problem wasn't the pages that were lost. The problem was you thinking that there was possibly something you could ever do to mess up my work. They put themselves in hell. I mean, come on, he's yeah. talking about his soul being damned or something. Right. I mean, and yeah. he was damned. He was in hell, right? He yeah, was yeah. damned. He couldn't progress. But it wasn't you know, they an couldn't move forward. Of the Lord. No, not at all. Yeah, yeah. He, he but he had to move on beyond that and, and the Lord helps him understand that eventually. So uh, there's some great parallels here be between those things. Um, but again, the Lord says he's not displeased with the fact that they came, even though the reason that they came for wasn't really in accordance with his will, because the Lord can make good of any situation whatsoever. And so he says, you're here in Salem. Let's do some preaching. <laughs> right? Right. And so he 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 puts them to work in preaching. And then he kind of calms their fears. He says, you're going to get the gold and silver that you need to pay off the debts. Verses five and six, I love, concern not yourselves about your debts, for I will give you power to pay them. Concern not yourselves about Zion, for I will deal mercifully with her. So this is illusory to me of the Sermon on the Mount. Concern not yourself with the worries of tomorrow or what you're going to wear or eat. You know, the Lord is going to take care of those things. That's such a comfort, Ben, to, yeah. to realize that, that, that given, given how far apart these two scenarios are, hmm. I, you know, I just see a principle and, and I think it applies to me. And I need not concern myself with whatever it is I'm concerned about and trust in the Lord. Yeah. When we discussed the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount, especially when, back when we were doing 3 Nephi chapter 12, uh, we went over this, this concept that when we say take no thought for the morrow, it doesn't mean don't think about it at all. The actual words actually talk about our anxiety or our worry over it right? Yeah. As if the outcome is going to be detrimental to our existence or salvation or something like that. And again, the Lord 
isn't telling us that we are responsible for achieving some particular outcome or some external particular outcome, right? The outcome he wants us concerned with is simply that of our own heart. Yeah, it, it's not our salvation that need concern sure. us in, in the sense that he's got that, right? Right, even, even that we, is taken care of, yeah. Right, the, our only concern is purifying our own hearts. Right. And even that, we don't have to do alone. There really is nothing that we have to do alone. And that's the importance, as, as we were talking pre-show, of, of the atonement, right? Yeah. Yeah, that aloneness. It, it, it does remind me of a, a great talk by Neil A. Maxwell years and years ago where you know he talks about there's, there's nothing we can give to the Lord that isn't already his to begin with. Really, the only thing is, is our will, right? We align our will with his. Everything else is really just the return to sender gift thing, right? You know? Right. And um, so, so that – that concept here in, in 111 really kind of brings together the idea that the Lord can make good of any situation, even if we go down a path that we think is going to achieve a particular thing. And it turns out, oh, that this path I went down for this purpose. But the fact that I went down the path, the Lord's like, that's fine. There's any path you go down, I can make good out of it. And that reminds me once again of, of what Rumi said, there are as many paths to God as there are people on earth. Because whatever path God's children take, he'll bring us back to, to him. We get verse 11 here. Therefore, be as wise as serpents and yet without sin, and I will order all things for your good. This just goes right with the concept, right? You know, like, all things accomplished, the Lord can order them such that they are for our good, as fast as you are able to receive them. And this was fascinating to me, this, this concept here, that you know, often we, we aren't ready to understand all the purposes of the Lord in our life. And only in as much as we're humble and prepared for him to show us everything that's going on surrounding our circumstances and, and, and how it is that he is present in our life, then he can show us as fast as we are able to receive them. And so often in the moment, we're blind to that. And it can often take reflection or looking back on our life and seeing that the Lord really was there in details, but we weren't ready. We weren't able to receive, but as fast as we are, we will, we will receive that revelation, that understanding, that realization, that veil will be taken from our minds, right? To see what it is. What do you make of this as wise as serpents line? Well, that's reference to New Testament. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of commentary that goes around that. And so I, I want to hear what you have been thinking about with this concept. Well, you know, so it is a, an allusion to, what is it, Matthew ten sixteen, And I think it's interesting to note that the context of, of that, you know, what's going on there in Matthew 5, um, 10, 16, and what's going on here, not, not in this chapter only, but in this week's reading, they're similar, right? Because Jesus is sending out the 12 
and he's telling them to be as shrewd as serpents because that's really what we're dealing with here is it's the same it's the same shrewdness or cunning of Genesis 3:1 and of the um the self-preservation of the steward in Luke 16:1 through 8 There's something missing here in DNC 11, you know, because it doesn't say anything about being um, like doves too, right? Yeah, the, yeah. So the harmless serpents, doves. harmless as doves, yeah. So so we can get the impression if we don't have the context of the origin of this verse that, that them being, you know, like serpents has some kind of, maybe some kind of offensive sense to it when well, really isn't yet without sin you know right that's true yeah, yeah. That, that's true so but the the idea of being wise as serpents is more about self-preservation and self it, it's it's nothing it's passive right it's not really this active thing and then the active part of it is the being without sin right or being harmless as doves as it shows up in matthew ten sixteen. i am curious about the the imagery and symbolism here you know what is it that Especially if this is a an allusion to Matthew, what is the the context of the use of serpent by Christ? The use of the term serpent. How did the people at that time view snakes? View serpents? Because I don't know. I, I get the idea that at least instinctually humans are very um, averse to snakes, right? There's there's evolutionary pressures on that and everything, but but people are are averse to snakes in general, and so to use it as an imagery is kind of like is kind of an odd way to put it because it's it's a fearful symbol. Yeah, my understanding of the way it's used, though, Ben, it's actually the other way around, right? Um, ironically, because it really is about the snake's own tendency to, you know, slither away to protect itself from us. Yeah. I know the word subtle is used in Genesis. Um, I'd have to double check in Genesis. I know subtlety is used in, in Moses to describe the, the serpent in the garden. Yeah, and, and again, the, the word that's being used here in Matthew is phronimos, and it's the same word in Genesis 3.1 in the Septuagint. Okay. Right? It's, it's cunning. Okay. But again, to me, my understanding in the context here, it's, the, it's a more passive sense of the snake protecting itself by slithering away. Mm. Mm. So non-confrontational. Right. Again, it's immediately followed by being ha- harmless like a dove. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're going out there to, to accomplish a particular thing, but we're not doing it in a confrontational way. Right. We're being wise about how we approach people. And it's. I think we can also contrast, I just saw this, I hadn't thought of this earlier, um, we we can contrast the wisdom that's being called for here with the folly. Oh, sure. In the and this is the last verse, and the first verse opens with folly. Ah, ah, yeah, interesting. So this is a call to wisdom in the face of folly. Yeah. So there's no condemnation, and yet there's an invitation to be wise, hmm. an admonition to be wise. Well, yeah, and that that does give a little bit more meaning too to. Uh, um, I will order all things for your good again, because there's they're concerned about getting these debts paid, and the Lord saying, "I make it all in place the way it's supposed to be, as fast as you're able to receive them." So often we're concerned about timeframes as well, you know. Right, being we have in our a own timeframes, and and the Lord says, "Hey, it's all going to happen 
as fast as you're able for it to happen. And, and it's going to happen when it's supposed to, as you're ready. So you don't have to be anxious about it. It's going to come naturally. Well, anything else you want to say about uh, Section 111, Chris? No, I just had a funny image come to my mind <laughs> because it's a 1972 film. What's up, Doc? I don't know if you've seen it. Uh, and there's a, uh, there's supposed to be a snake in the room. It's not true, but the guy tells the, the woman on the bed, now, now, calm yourself, right? And so this is the image, right? You have the snake, you have the Lord saying, now, now, calm yourselves, right? Oh, okay. Everything's going to be just fine. <laughs> anxiety about it, the existence of the snake. <laughs> right. So uh, moving over into section 112, this is, I, it's a, I believe it's the second revelation explicitly to Thomas B. Marsh. Thomas B. Marsh was a pretty prominent figure in the early church, particularly as shown by the fact that he has two revelations that two, you know, decent sized revelations that are, uh, specifically address him and talk about his abilities and his calling and uh, what the Lord sees for him to do. We do have this story though about Thomas B. Marsh leaving the church and over the the milk and the cream and 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 really that's that's a fun story, but it the the reality was much more complex than that. You know of why he he decided to leave. Well, and there's something going on right here, right? Right here yeah. in section 112, because he's, he's being, you know, he's getting, here's what you're doing right. Here's what you're doing wrong. That's what's being told him. And he's taking dictation, right? The, Joseph Smith is dictating <laughs> this to Thomas B. Marsh, but he's, he's, his hearing is selective. And so he goes off and writes to other people and brags about the things that, that he's being, um, praised for and leaves out the thing that's things that he's being sure. admonished for. Sure. Yeah, that, that happens with him as well. You know, he has these moments where he's upset over, you know, the Lord tells him he has the keys of, of the, the missionary work, so to speak, opening the door of gospel to nations. And so Thomas B. Marsh believes, you know, this is his responsibility. The Lord's going to lead him in it. And then like, first thing Joseph Smith does is he goes and tells Heber C. Kimball to go on a mission to uh, England. And this was like the first mission to England. And Thomas B. Marsh is really upset about this. because He's like, no, Joseph, that was my responsibility. I was supposed to take care of this. So, you know, there's these, there's various moments that create a little bit of friction between Thomas B. Marsh and, and Joseph Smith. We, unfortunately, I think Thomas B. Marsh gets a, a bad rap <laughs> because of these moments of friction with Joseph Smith. Um, but it, all told in the historical context, we can see Thomas B. Marsh was actually a great man. The Lord endorses him pretty well here. And later in his life, he comes back to the church and goodness, you know, Brigham Young, even, even after he comes back, Brigham Young stands up in the meeting and kind of lambastes the guy and he takes it all in humility yeah. and just says, okay, that's fine. You know, I want to be with the saints. Right. By the time he comes back in 1857 and Heber Kimball's, you know, serving the first presidency and he says, look, I don't even deserve a place here. And, and yeah, you know, I, I didn't, I was supposed to go on this mission. Somebody else went. That's all water under the bridge. The Lord didn't lose anything here. I was the one who lost out. And I just went back. He just wants back at this point. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a, it's an interesting thing to say. Um, a, a, a profound insight that again, you know, the Lord doesn't 
need us to do his work, but he he he'd like us to participate into it with in it with him because he knows that we will find joy in it if we do. Yeah, I mean, there, on the one hand, he leaves the church. Thomas B. Marsh leaves the, leaves the church. He doesn't do the thing. The Lord finds someone else to do it. And he also accepts um, Marsh back. Right. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's, it's kind of the laborers in the vineyard type of thing. At the, you know, ultimately, there's not going to be like some eternal reward lost, you know, by Thomas B. Marsh. I, I don't see any reason for that. Um, it was just that moment of realization that, hey, you know, I could have been here all along participating in it. I decided to miss out on it for a little time. Ultimately, it's not going to make any difference, but I did miss out on that that little bit of time. It's kind of like prodigal son type of thing too. Him, right, the no, prodigal son you- saying, oh, well, how come you threw this big feast for this guy that came back? Right. Like, well, you've been with me the whole time experiencing and having everything that I have. Like what, what do you, you eat with me every evening. You know, what are you upset about? So. <laughs> And conversely, you know, when, when, whether it's the prodigal son or whether it's Marsh, when you come back, you know, thinking of the, the ones that show up at the 11th hour, why would they receive any less of the fullness of whatever it is God is offering? Right? The presence of God right. is 100%, right? Yeah. Whether you, whether you show up later, you show up early, you're in the presence of God and, and it's yeah. all there. Yeah. Yeah. It's everything. Yeah. It, it, it says that multiple times in the scriptures, you receive. Servants, you receive me. When you receive me, you receive my father, everything, right? That's um, the whole and, enchilada. And um, we can we can have it now or we can have it later. The Lord says, well, why not make today the day of your salvation? Why not have it already? Why not start experiencing it now? Um, you can wait if you want to, but there's not any point and waiting um right so. as as uh, riley and i uh discussed in our episode on latter-day contemplation and resurrection we don't even have to wait until we uh die to be resurrected we can live a fully resurrected life now we can live that that's reality. possible yeah yeah mm-hmm. jesus did yeah he what does he look like bef- uh, you know after he's resurrected the same as before he he does all the same things all those things are possible in this life So several verses in one twelve stand out to me. Uh, often quoted, verse ten: "Be thou humble, and the Lord thy God shall lead thee by the hand and give the answer to thy prayers." This kind of made me think of what we talked about last time with prayer. We went through that dedicatory prayer and and talked about how there was sort of those inconsistencies and ups and downs and struggles that uh, Joseph is is having in his prayer as he's understanding and revealing the will of the Lord through the prayer, right? And, and aligning his will with the will of the Lord through the prayer. And the mechanism or one of the, the main mechanisms there is humility, right? Allowing the Lord's will to prevail over ours. Yeah. And so he leads us and then gives us the answer to the prayers, which is, he's that, what is he leading us to? He's leading us to, into an alignment with him. Yeah, and that's the answer to the prayers. The the answer to your prayers is alignment with the with the will of the Father. If if you're looking for some other answer, well, I think He can be patient enough with us, right? If we keep praying for something <laughs> else, He's going to continue to try to lead us as long as we humble ourselves until we get to that place of alignment with His will. Yeah. If God knows the answer to those questions in those situations. 
because of who he is, then the answer to our prayers is becoming more like God because then we will have that, right? Right. Because we're in, we're in that experience, we're in that reality. And so aligning our will with his automatically gives us that answer because that because it that's what it is the the answer is who is part of his reality of being so um then i like it goes on to 11 i know thy heart and have heard thy prayers concerning thy brethren be not partial towards them in love above many others but let thy love be for them as for thyself and let thy love abound unto all men and unto and unto all who love my name. Okay, so speaking of prayer and, you know, our will our will being pitted against the Lord and humility allowing us to change our will and, and become in line with the Lord, this, this makes me think of, okay, so obviously there's something going on here where he's praying and he's, in his prayer, his, his concern is focused on some particular people, his brethren, right? His friends. And that seemed his, his uh, intention seems to be enveloped in that concern to the exclusion in some way of considering others. And the Lord is saying that in a, in a true experience of prayer, when you're praying, your heart expands in a ch- in a moment of charity, you know this reminds me of Enoch when when he's praying and he sees the Lord and he has experience with the Lord and it says his heart expands wide as eternity, right? That and and then Enos, right, when he's praying for his brethren and then he prays for his enemies, that in that moment as as you're you're praying and your heart is is seeking the welfare of maybe a particular person, you start to understand that that needs to expand out to others. So it kind of reminded me of the Mark Twain, the war prayer. I love the war prayer. And anybody who hasn't, hasn't heard this, should go look it up. You know, there's multiple renditions of it on, on YouTube, but the war prayer. So the concept of the war prayer is that when we're praying, often the things that we can be praying for imply something else as well. And so there's the said prayer and the unsaid prayer. So if in the war prayer, what you're doing is you're praying for your country to win the war. And that's the said prayer. But the unsaid prayer is that you're praying for your enemy to die, to be slaughtered, for their homes to be, you know, to be burned, all these awful things that happen to the losers in war. And for you orphans may not and widows. Think that. Yeah, you may not realize that uh, consciously when you're praying, but really subconsciously and by implication, that's what you're saying. And so there's there's some of this here. Um, and what I meant, Ben, by for orphans and widows is for children to be orphaned and women to be widowed, right? Right, right. So the Lord saying here, hey, you know, take these things into consideration because I do. And if you want your will aligned with mine, this is what I think. All of humanity is under my eye. We're still struggling with the second commandment, right? Thou shalt uh, love thy neighbor as thyself, right? The the neighbor, the, the, the word plesion, it really means 
it's actually those who are near you. So it's understood primarily as your friends. Mm. And, you know, Marcia's got that down. But, but Jesus was pushing to another meaning. The next sense would be, at the time that is, would be those of your own tribe. Not just your friends, but those, you know, who are again near you. Your, the people close to you, right? The, your neighbors. But Jesus was trying to, to teach that we love all mankind. I mean, you brought up earlier in pre-show the, the Samaritans, right? That it, it becomes really super clear there. And so he's talking about all humankind and taking into account, as you said, that that's who he's thinking of. And so you're, if we're going to align our, our, our wills with the Lord's, then we have to be thinking of not only our friends, not only those of our own kind, our own country, what have you, but all mankind, all of God's children, just as that, that, that's his concern, all of his children. Yeah. You know, it, it made me think that in that interpretation, the, the word neighbor, it, was interpreted metaphorically, right? Those who are close to me uh, in a metaphorical way, you know, by relationship or close to me in appearance or close to me in ideology or or genetics or whatever. But Christ expanding that to say not just metaphorically, literally, the person that is next to you that needs help, that's your neighbor. They are near you. The Samaritan walking by that man on the road that needed help, he was near him. So he was his neighbor. And considering that you, you know, you don't have to, um, look out and, and way across many miles to find someone to help. You may, that's fine. But Christ saying that, you can just look right around you and there's always someone that needs help no matter where you are anyone who's near you literally not just metaphorically right right so yeah i, I think that was all i was going to say about that concept of the war prayer did you have anything to add to to that and how it relates to this verse no nothing at all well put be not partial towards them in love above many others, but let thy love be for them as for thyself, and let thy love abound unto all men, and unto all who love my name. Unto all men, and unto all who love my name. And it's not only unto all who love my name, it's unto all men, yeah, all of humankind, yeah, and unto all who love my name. I'm going to go to verse 13 here. Uh, I think there's another important concept. And after their temptations and much tribulation, behold, I, the Lord, will feel after them. And if they harden not their hearts and stiffen not their necks against me, they shall be converted and I will heal them. So this is a kind of a beatitude-like verse for me in in some ways, and, and there's other stuff going on. But I, I think here in the beginning, after their temptations and much tribulation, these, these are often periods of emptying when maybe someone loses, uh, you know, a tribulation often is, is typically you're a loss, right? Maybe it's a financial loss, a relationship loss, you know, you're losing something. And so there's that, that poverty going on, either po- literal poverty or poverty of spirit, right? And then it says, behold, I, the Lord will feel, feel after, feel after them. And if they harden not their hearts, Okay, 
and stiffen not their necks against me, they'll be converted and I will heal them. So we have a, that period of loss, the period of mourning. Blessed are they that mourn, for they shall be comforted. I, the Lord, will feel after them. And if they harden not their hearts, stiffen not their necks against me, they shall be converted and I will heal them. The, the other way to go with this verse has to do just with, with our normal life experience where we may um, <clears throat> go through trials, tribulations, um, whatever we want to call them, difficult things, painful experiences, traumatic experiences, that on the, on the other side, so to speak, of these, the Lord um, is able to heal us. And that doesn't mean that the Lord is only on the other side. When we do find that healing, we will be able to look back and see that earlier in this verse, it says the Lord will feel after them. That the Lord really was there with us, even in those trials and tribulations and pain. And it might have been difficult for us to see it at the moment, but that the healing that comes in, at least in part, is the realization that we weren't alone, even though we might have felt alone. I'm reminded of the beautiful poem, Footprints in the Sand. Mm, yeah. Yeah. Something like that. <laughs> it's, it's, it's gone cliche, but, but I, there's some prof profundity to it, right? <laughs> and yet maybe someone doesn't know the poem, right? You, you have sure. this experience of walking alone. You look at the footprints and you only see one set. And why is that? It's not because you're alone. It's because those were the times when the Lord carried you. In that moment, that realization, there's the healing. Because at least in part, if not a major a contributor, knowing that you simply weren't alone means that that experience that you had no longer has to be a negative traumatic experience. Now it was a, an experience where you were with the Lord, even though it was something unpleasant. Yeah. It can be ordered. What does he say in the previous section? Ordered for your good. And this is the conversion, right? Conversion here means the process of changing or causing something to change from one form to another. It's not about changing one's religion or beliefs, right? It's about th something changing form. The conversion of your experience from the experience that you had of walking alone to the experience of the realization that you're being carried. Yeah. I'm not sure if I've thought about it that way before, that, that conversion, you know, wouldn't just be about our our perception of God, but also our perception of our experience. That our perception of our experience is converted from something negative to something positive as part of the repentance process, right? Right. Hmm, that's interesting. Yeah, there's a sense of conversion. I, I think in a broader context, you can think in terms of uh, conflict resolution. Right? So you can have a, a transformation or a conversion would be synonymous in that context, right? Of the conflict. Yeah. So that's alchemical in a way that I hadn't thought about it before. Yeah. <laughs> that conversion. Very much so. Yeah. yeah. That's cool. Um, 
I'm going to go, oh, wait, 14. We were going to talk about something about 14. So uh, now I say unto you, and what I say unto you, I say unto all the 12, arise and gird up your loins, take up your cross, follow me and feed my sheep. It's just like Jesus condensed into one verse, right? <laughs> Every- this is like reading the the uh, Thomas Jefferson Bible. Yeah, sure. Yeah. All of this Jesus, Jesus condensed, you know. Yeah. I really love the Thomas Jefferson Bible. Seriously, yeah. Ben. If, it's a shot in the arm to read just everything right. Jesus taught. Right. To kind of in, in sweep away some of the stuff that could. Yeah. It's, it's pretty powerful. It's a powerful experience because you could really read it in just a few hours and get this. I always call it a shot in the arm of Jesus. Condensed. And so yeah, that that's what this looks like. You know, there's a lot of what Jesus says all crammed into one verse. Yeah. So these these great sayings that you could, you know, and people have written volumes of commentary just on each one of these little phrases, right? Especially things like take up your cross. Like there are endless libraries written on those words. Right. Yeah. So much there. Gird up your loins, take up your cross, follow me and feed my sheep. So I'm going to go over to verse 27. Therefore, see to it that you trouble not yourselves concerning the affairs of my church in this place, saith the Lord. So again, this theme that we talked about in the beginning with the Lord saying, don't be anxious or worried about this. This is my church. I'm going to take care of the outcomes here. This is what you need to be concerned about, right? And it's very little (laughs) comparatively. Verse 28, but purify your hearts before me and then go. Or you you liked it. I I emphasized and then go. And you you said, and then go. (laughs) And then go. First purify your heart, then go preach to others. Into all the world and preach my gospel into every creature who has not received it. So again, concerned with your own heart. And then going and preaching. But it doesn't say that once you have gone out and you've baptized a certain number of people, then you can, you know, come and and live with me in the celestial kingdom, right? Um, it talks about those who believe and be baptized will be saved, and they believe, and he that believeth not and is not baptized shall be damned. But it's not making you responsible for a particular outcome. Right. right. And in keeping with the theme that you've brought out in this week's reading, we can have whatever plans we have for how many people we're going to baptize or what we think we're going to do. And as John Lennon said, life is what happens while you're making other plans. <laughs> and, and as, you know, and as, as God himself is saying here in these sections, it's okay. Yeah. It's, it's okay. Nothing's wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Verse 34 Be faithful until I come, for I come quickly. We've talked about that phrase quite a bit. Um, and my reward is with me to recompense every man according as his work shall be. I am Alpha and Omega. Amen. I like that phrase. My reward is with me. Um, we talked about the coming of Christ, not necessarily or not only being this future event that we look forward to as a like a global external um, physical physical presence of Christ, but also if not more importantly, an individual realization of our own true nature, our own true Christ nature. And and Ben, when you say, if not more importantly, you know, if that strikes anyone as downplaying in any way that 
potential future event, right? The point is, I may or may not be here when that happens. Hmm. So it may, it may not, it may be irrelevant to me. And it's only a my subset experience, of people, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. So what's, what's relevant to me is, can, can he come quickly to me now? And that, and that coming of, of him quickly is the reward. When he says, my reward is with me, I read that as, my coming itself is the reward. Yeah, yeah. Anything else you wanted to bring up with section 112, Christopher? No, I can't think of anything else, Ben. Okay. So section 113 gets into a discussion. It's kind of a question and answer thing a la section 77, right? It looks like a catechism. Yeah, yeah. And some interesting references to some Isaiah stuff. When we talked about this before, um, I kind of jumped over to verses that were talking about the priesthood and started talking about that. And and Christopher, you were like, I got a kick out of that. <laughs> you talk about these first verses. You just skipped and, right over this. Yeah. And my comment was just that I didn't really have any particular insight or commentary on them. You know, people can read them and that's fine. Um, but but as we talked about the fact that we didn't have anything to say about them. <laughs> a lot comes out, right? Yeah, it, it is interesting how the more you talk about something that you don't think you have anything to say about, you start having things to say about it. Right. I, there was kind of a realization that came to me. And the realization was that, okay, these these verses of Isaiah that have literally been commented on a thousand times by people much more highly qualified than I am. Before and since. Yeah, before this revelation. Correct. Joseph Smith, at least, you know, he, he, he sees these verses and to him, they are significant in their fulfillment and reference to the work that he's doing right then. And right. I think that that is important because the responsibility that he had and, and the, the opposition that was going on and everything, I think necessitated that he receive these types of assurances from time to time that the Lord really had called him to a work that this great prophet Isaiah may have even prophesied of, of him doing it. The Lord was aware of it. The Lord was with him and the Lord was going to support him in the work. Him seeing these or seeing himself in the scriptures and then, and saying it that way is is a pattern for us, just like that prayer, that Kirtland Temple prayer is a pattern for us. We can see ourselves in the scriptures, um, especially when we're told to take upon ourselves the name of Christ. If we take upon ourselves the name of Christ, all of a sudden, every verse that's about Christ is about us, right? And why shouldn't it be, right? That Christ is bigger than Jesus, right? right. Jesus is, is the Christ, true enough, but that's not his last name, and, and we're to be Christ. You know, the Muslims find... Um, the coming of the prophet Muhammad foretold in the New Testament. Mm. Joseph Smith found himself in the Old Testament. I think it's important to remember not only not to to take things literally. You know, obviously, no person is a stem or a or a rod. Or is there a root here too? I think there's a root, right. isn't there? Yep, there's a root. Right. These are people we're talking about, symbolized by these by these symbols. And at the same time, that to realize that. There's probably something here that Isaiah is saying that has to do with his own context, even if it has some, even if it has something to say in another context or to another context or to someone else later. And symbols can be polyvalent, right? The the meanings can be multiple, right? 
And I like what you did with it, Ben, where you say, let's, and, and we're taught to do this, right? Let's liken the scriptures unto ourselves. That's what Joseph Smith is doing here. Yeah, yeah. Then moving on with this section, um, we get a little more specific reference and treatment of this concept of priesthood keys, which really is still developing at this time. It gets alluded to over and over in the scriptures, but like what it really is, if it's clear to Joseph Smith, it's not really clear to many others <laughs> than Joseph Smith. So we have, uh, we do have section 110 that we talked about uh, last time where uh, Elijah, Elias, Moses, they come and restore the keys of specific things. And so now we have the concept of, oh, Keys are to accomplish, are, are these ability to accomplish these specific prophecies or fulfill these specific prophecies or things that the Lord, tasks that the Lord has set us to, right? Yeah, and I think we said this, Ben, remind me, uh, but these keys, you know, them coming and saying to Joseph Smith, you have these keys. Well, look at how I just said it, right? That you have these keys. It's not that... I don't know that they're necessarily bringing something other than an awareness, right? Sure. You have, because he has priesthood power, right? And now they're saying, you can do these things. Sure. You can do all these things, right? And so there's that. And then I also remember we talked about Zion's camp. You know, Zion is supposed to be redeemed by power. And at the time that Zion's camp is marching, it's the arm of the flesh, I think, is the power that, or, or the force of arms is what the men have in mind. And yet it, we understood it as priesthood. And, and I think that's, that's how we explained it, right? And here in verse eight, it's spelled out, right? The yeah. power of the priesthood to bring again Zion. But we still don't know what the power of, sorry, I read the power of the priesthood. It doesn't say yeah, the power yeah. of the priesthood. And this is a point we want to bring out. The power of priesthood to bring again Zion. Right. And so, but it doesn't tell us what priesthood is. And there is no the priesthood here. Right. Yeah, this this is again these these references we we had before references to keys and not really clear as to what this is and then we get section 110 that kind of oh okay that's I I kind of start to see what you're talking about and now he, he uses this term again well what are these keys well reference to those whom God would call in the last days who should hold the power of priesthood to bring again Zion and the redemption of Israel and to put on her strength is to put on the authority of the priesthood, which she Zion has a right to by lineage and also to return to that power, which she has lost. And here we do have the priesthood, Ben. Right. Yeah. So we, we have priesthood and the priesthood as well. Of Zion, of Zion right? Let's see. Is yeah. it of Zion? Yeah. yeah. The power of the priesthood to bring again Zion. So the purpose of the priesthood, as stated in this section, is the bringing about of Zion, the establishment of Zion. And what is that power? What is the strength? It's to put on the authority of the priesthood, which she Zion has the right to by lineage to return to that power, which she had lost. And yet at this point, we still don't know what that is. <laughs> Again, yeah. So... We don't really have this concept. It, just like before, there was these allusions to priesthood keys and priesthood and are like, we don't really know what this is. We don't really know what this is. And then later, these concepts get developed and it gets presented more and more what it is. We are getting sort of 
uh, glimpses of this because just like you said, we had the Zion's camp and it says Zion must be redeemed by power. And so like, oh, power. Okay, everybody get your guns. <laughs> Let's go shoot them up, right? Maybe they heard powder. Powder. <laughs> <laughs> and so then they, they get there. The Lord says, no. Um, he says, I do not require that you fight Zion's battles. Okay. Mm. So that's not the power that I'm talking about. It's and something else. And it's go else. home. But it's not just go home. Yeah. The people are still like, well, what what power are you talking about? Yeah. In my word, Ben, the, the gospel doctrine instructor wanted to end the story with go home. But it wasn't just go home. Mm-hmm. It's go home to the temple. Yes. And that's where the endowment of power comes. Right, right. So again, they're not sure exactly what the Lord means by power at this point, it seems. They have some ideas, but he's bringing in them into this realization and leading them along and teaching them. It's almost like you know we talked about those verses before. He says, I'll order all things for your good as fast as you're able to receive them. Right. Okay. So I'm going to teach you about what this power is, but because, because of the nature of what it is, there's some experiences you're going to have to have first so that when I tell you what it is, you have a context in which to place that and it makes sense. So in other words, Ben, you'll have to first think it's arms and <laughs> march a long ways and find out it's not. And, and that'll yeah, be a lesson yeah. to you, right? And not only that, but let's not forget of all the time that those men spent together. And and again, we talked about this last time, right? That the the companions of the prophet as it were, they become the leadership of the church. Sure. And, you know, somebody like Brigham Young learns a lot formative about, event. right. Yeah. He learns a lot about moving people across the, across yeah. the land. Right. Yeah. There's all kinds of things that come out of this. Yeah. It's not clear to me, you know, w- when you say you have to first, you know, take up the arms and do that. It's not clear to me um, whether that has to happen so much as like, it just does like like it's a descriptive thing like you know it's a natural process yeah, i didn't mean yeah, i didn't mean to be taken literally in that no, way yeah, 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 yeah. the lord is saying okay this is what they're gonna think right yeah they're gonna like, think guns and okay let's well, i'll play along and here we go right it's just sure. it's, when i say i play along it reminds me of the um the idea of the ancient israelites thinking that yahweh is their tribal warrior god sure and and god just says okay guys i'm i'm not your warrior god but keep praying to me and let's let's be in relationship let's and keep and this relationship to, going though. right yeah, and he wants yeah. to reveal himself to them and that happens slowly and it's you know grace upon grace yeah and that's a good point so the lord is working with them here and, and trying to reveal himself to them and with us and and with us and and this really comes to a theological well i mean we might call it a climax at this point but uh, obviously you know that's that's still um, looking within within the confines of of these revelations that Joseph Smith's receiving, um, and I'm certainly not going to limit the Lord into saying, "Oh, this is the you know this is the pinnacle of all revelation." But DNC one twenty one is pretty good stuff, right? <laughs> yes, and that we're and we're getting there, and and we're getting there, and and this is this kind of is where that culmination of of understanding. The priesthood comes. And where does it come? In a dark, wet prison at the bleakest moment in Joseph Smith's and the saints' lives. Where power to overcome is desired, very much yeah. desired, right? Yeah. 
And yet still probably not the right idea of power. Yeah. But comes this revelation of power, of what it is. Can we take a, a sneak peek, Ben? I mean, I know we'll get <laughs> to talk about this, or you and Sh- Shiloh will get to talk about this when the time comes. Yeah. But, but because we brought this up here, right? What is the power of priesthood, quote unquote, hmm. according to section 121? Yeah. Power. What is this? It's going to get us out of this bleak situation and it's going to redeem Zion and, and it's not arms. What is it? What is this power? Yeah. So 121, no power or influence can or ought to be maintained by virtue of the priesthood, only by persuasion, by long suffering, by gentleness and meekness, and by love unfeigned. That is not the world's concept of power. You know, I'm going to insert here, you know, it is fascinating to me that it takes, you know, we're not even halfway through all of the words that he uses to describe priesthood, right? But it's fascinating to me that it takes all of these words in an attempt to approximate what it is. And yet, it's still not what it is, right? It definitely points us to it. By kindness and pure knowledge, which shall greatly enlarge the soul without hypocrisy and without guile, reproving betimes with sharpness when moved upon by the Holy Ghost, and then showing forth afterwards an increase of love toward him whom thou hast reproved, lest he esteem thee to be his enemy, that he may know that thy faithfulness is stronger than the cords of death. Let thy bowels also be full of charity towards all men and to the household of faith, and let virtue garnish thy thoughts unceasingly. Then shall thy confidence wax strong in the presence of God, and the doctrine of the priesthood shall distill upon thy soul as the dews from heaven. Meaning there's more to come. Exactly. All of this, and then you still have to have yeah. it distill upon you. By the way, there were the um, there it was again, let thy bowels be full of mercy toward all men. Yeah, yeah. Same as we covered in the in the prayer. Yeah. The Holy Ghost shall be thy constant companion and thy scepter, an unchanging scepter of righteousness and truth, and thy dominion shall be an everlasting dominion, and without compulsory means. It shall flow unto thee forever and ever. But wait, there's more. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. So, yeah, just like we were saying, you know, there's all these words, just, you know, some of the most beautiful words that that Joseph Smith ever received in Revelation, I think, that describe this thing. And yet they're all to say that this is simply descriptive of, of your experience in which you will then start receiving revelation about what the priesthood really is and let's remind ourselves (laughs) that authority is experience yes authority authentic right coming from a a true experience something really lived and understood in in a phenomenological way that's who speaks from authority right the the one who has experience right right yeah so the thing that that this makes me think of is Alma chapter 13 and 14. Well, really all the Ammonihah stuff. So I love the story. Yeah, Shiloh and I got to do, we did a, a series of podcasts on Ammonihah when we were doing LDS Liberty. And then when we did, were doing Come Follow Me, we went and did them all over again. So it was, it was great. You know, there's so much there that we didn't, it wasn't boring at all to do it twice. <laughs> well, I'll settle for a synopsis here, Ben. <laughs> And and those those podcasts are still all available, right? Yes. Those episodes, yep. whether even LDS Liberty, right? Correct. You could you could find those, yeah. But yeah, if it, I would some of the, some of the 
the ones that I appreciated, uh, that I, I got the most out of, out of all of them, um, which I believe is saying a lot because uh, I've learned so much, were those ones that we did on, on Ammonihah. This reminded me, as I was reading through this section 113 of Alma chapter 13, which is Alma's discourse on the priesthood and in particular like high priests or Melchizedek priesthood. And it's fascinating because it, it seems so out of context that these people that he's giving this, this discourse to on the priesthood are the Ammonihaites, who in the very next chapter mass murder women and children in a fire. And, you know, it, it really like raises this question, like, why are you, why are you spending all this time teaching this to a people that then commit these atrocities? You know, it occurs to me that what the Lord is doing with the fire is not what the Ammonites think is happening with the fire. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. There's definitely two epistemic realities here. Right. And, and Alma bears that out. Um, so in previous chapters in Ammonihah, the, uh, some of the context of this is that, you know, Alma has left his position in government as the chief judge and he's gone out to preach and he's been out doing it for years and he arrives in the city of Ammonihah and he starts to preach to them. And one of the first things they say to him is like, what are you doing here? You don't have any authority. You're not the chief judge anymore. So you don't have any power over us. And the implication there is that the Ammonihaites are really only interested in political authority, right? They're only go, they would, would only be interested in what Alma has to say if he were a political authority, right? The authority they're looking for is the hierarchical one. Sure. I'm over, you're over me. You're not over me in this case. Yeah. Yeah. Power. And what they view as power, which they, they explicitly say later, is that ability to impose their will by force, right? And since Alma's not the chief judge, he can't do that anymore. So they're like, why are you even here? And Alma says, I'm here for a totally different reason. And let me show you, and he gets to, section, to chapter 13, let me tell you what I mean by power. And what I mean by power isn't what you think power is. So he goes into the concept of being a high priest or this path of Christ is really how he, he lays it out because he says that these high priests are supposed to be types of Christ. They're supposed to follow the path of Christ, um, take up their cross. He doesn't use those terms, but that's really what he's, he's saying here. And, you know, he references Melchizedek and what he did for his people, and he preached to the people and brought them to righteousness, not by political authority, not by imposing law or threats of violence on his people, but by teaching them and preaching to them, bearing testimony to them. And so Alma's saying, this is what I'm doing. I'm trying to do this by the power of the priesthood, persuasion, all these things that we just talked about with section 121. My power is not of political authority, the idea that you think of power, this is a different kind of power. And then in the following chapter, chapter 14, they take all these people, they throw them in the fire, and Amulek says, we have the power to stop this. We need to do it. And Alma says, that's not the way it works. 
Oh, how do you, I mean, how do you deal with that? Right? Yeah. <laughs> how does he deal with it? And, and, and Amulek is, is kind of, I mean, doesn't tell us what Amulek's response was, but frankly, Amulek's family is probably burned. Right. So then they throw them in prison for, uh, at, this says many days. When we calculated out, it could have been about 30 days. They're deprived of food and water. Their uh, their clothes, they are tied up, they are spit on and slapped and beat and mocked continuously. And the the chief judge of the Ammonites comes in and he slaps them and he says, "See, you don't have any power. You couldn't deliver those people. You can't deliver yourself." And the whole time, he's responding with power, and they're blind to it. Yeah, the whole time his power is the ability. To resist reviling. Yes. Right? To follow to turn the path the other of cheek. Christ. To turn the other cheek, literally, even in this case, and to be at peace with himself, even after all these awful things he's just seen. And so he's there with Amulek, you know, at least he's not alone. And after all this time, they, they, they finally stand up, they pray to the Lord. Um, and we, we talk about all this in the podcast, but but there is their Alma is exhibiting the power that he just tried to present to them in in the previous chapter, and they don't even see it. They're blind to it because now. all they're looking for is that political power, ability to enforce their will, impose their will by violence on another person. And so, and they're burning people. Yeah, and so is God. Only God's way of doing it is purification by fire. Yeah, God receives those people to Himself. He purifies them. He brings them into his presence and they remain in darkness. Yeah. Yeah. Ammonites remain in darkness. So there we see this. Um, I, I just love the example of how the story plays out of what power is. It's, it's just a great story about power, priesthood power, and what the Lord means by that. And it fits so well in here with the saints coming into an understanding of what the priesthood is and and how Zion is to be brought again. How is it to be brought again? By this kind of power, by the power that Christ showed us, his way, by what we see um, with Alma and Amulek, by that power, by the power that is is explained and expounded upon in in as many words in section 121, this is the power by which Zion is brought about. I think it's it's as confusing to us in, in, in our day as it was to the Romans who thought that victory came by defeat and and Christ's victory comes through surrender. Hmm. Yeah, they the, the Romans uh, they find victory in, in killing and and Jesus finds it in dying. Yeah, he really does subvert all of our worldly concepts doesn't he turns all the hierarchies on their heads he subverts all of our concepts and shows us power that the way you defeat your enemy isn't by killing them it's by dying for them yeah right the anti-nephi lehi has come readily to mind yeah and we tend to dismiss them as uh well we I, i don't mean to say we dismiss them you know they did what they did because of who they had been, and that doesn't apply to us. I Relegated. think is the usual, right? Yeah. That's the usual interpretation. Yeah. It's not. It's not. They're the ones that got it right in the Book of Mormon that that sure. we usually take away from that story. They're the exception. They're the exception. They are the exception. They're the sure. ones who get it right. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> and look what happens. I mean, the whole Book of Mormon is full of wars. And in this case, in the case of the Antinephites, you have the lowest body count of all the battles in the Book of Mormon. Right. And you have more people converted. Converted, right? Remember, I was talking about conversion. Yeah, actually changed. Right. There's a transformation from enemy to brother. Yeah. So all these concepts brought out in, in this idea that that Zion is, is, as this verse said, to return to that power which she had lost, right? Restoration. That which was lost is found. Bringing back that which was lost. And the Lord has said that we have enough and in store to redeem Zion. If we will but take up our cross and follow him, right? When we're ready, as fast as we are ready. <laughs> That's right. Anything else about section 113, Chris? I was actually looking back at section 112 to, what was it, verse 14 yeah. again? Okay. No. Oh, yeah. Yes, yes. You said, take up your cross and follow me. Yeah. I was just thinking you left out a few things, Ben. Oh, I'm right? sure I did. Gird up your <laughs> loins, take up your cross, follow me, and feed my sheep. I just had to go back to that. No, that's all for, for 113, uh, Ben. Okay. I can't think of anything else. So with 114, we have the character of David W. Patton. So David W. Patton is famous for being killed. Um, he's Some of the early saints would have called him a martyr. Um, in a strict sense, that's not really what he was because, well, we can get into all that, but he, David W. Patton was one of the casualties in the, what is termed the Mormon war, right? In Missouri. And he actually led a group of people to violently go back and try to, you know, take back their properties. That battle didn't go so well for the saints and then ended up, uh, precipitating a lot of worse things that happened in Missouri later. Yeah, he was supposed to go on a mission right. in 1839. Instead, he dies in uh, 1838. And somebody else goes. And that's that's part of yeah. the, the nothing's wrong theme done, of so. this, right? Yeah. Uh, the, the, the work goes on. So we have this call to David E. Patton here. And it's, it's reminiscent uh, to me of the the young rich man that comes to Christ, right? And says, what do I need to do yet? He says, sell everything and, and come follow me. So he, he tells him to settle up his business as soon as he's, as he possibly can and make a disposition of his merchandise that he may perform a mission unto me next spring in company with others. So this and was that supposed doesn't happen to be, as I, as I pointed right, out, right? Yeah. yeah. I, this was what the Lord had, had asked him to do. He's, he's supposed to settle his affairs so that everything can be in order and um, he can go on a mission. And then we just have one more verse, Ben, verse two. And it, it, it seems like there's, there's not much to this, but there's a lot behind this verse. Sure. There's a lot going yeah. on here, a lot of context to this. Yeah. You have what? The entire first presidency, one third of the apostles apostatize. And what does the Lord say? Others shall be planted in their stead and receive their bishopric, by which is meant whatever their calling. Their calling, were. yeah. Yeah. Their office, right. Yeah, whatever their office, right? Yeah. Right. Whether, you know, whether, you know, David Patton goes or whether Thomas Marsh goes or whether 
Oliver Cowdery apostatizes and, and so many others. The work goes on. Who, who fills in here? You have people like Wilfred Woodruff and... John Taylor. John Taylor, yeah. And John Taylor comes at this time. Yeah, yeah. they so they do nicely, don't they? Yeah. yeah. When it comes to carrying on the work. Well, um, I think that's uh, that's all I had to say for these sections. Christopher, anything else you would like to add in, oh, in closing? No, no. I, I, thought, I thought you were going to say something else. Uh, I, I hope I didn't steal your thunder. No, not at all. Yeah. You know, again, my only comment on, on section 114 was, was that, that concept of, of him having to, to give up all his things and, and follow Christ right. and, and go on a mission. And the, the historical, um, point of, of interest there was that he ended up dying in this battle that he wasn't really supposed to be messing with at all, you know. <laughs> yeah, he goes astray. He doesn't go on a mission. He goes astray instead. So, and then all the others that, that went astray at that time. And yet, yeah. nothing's wrong. Yeah. Lord yeah. gets taken care of anyway. <laughs> so, Well, that's that's all I've got, Ben. Okay, great. Well, anybody that uh, has listened to this podcast thus far, <laughs> if you have any other thoughts, additional insight, comments that you'd like to make, uh, shoot us a message and, and let us know. Um, we'd love to hear it. Uh, that would be it for today. So until next time, I'm Ben Peterson. And I'm Christopher Hurtado. Thanks. Thanks.